We're excited to tell you about Pine Tree Garden Seeds, a women-run, family-owned and operated business since 1979, founded with the simple mission of offering low prices on quality seeds to the home gardener. Over the years, offerings have expanded to include over 1,300 varieties of seeds, including many heirlooms and organics, a huge assortment of tools and gardening gear, and lots of new gardening books. They also offer roots, plant starts, and tubers, berry bushes, asparagus roots, onion sets, hops, fig trees, sweet potatoes, dahlias, peonies, lilies, and a whole new selection of fall flower bulbs. Located in Maine, they operate out of a 300-year-old farmhouse and strive to offer the best service and products with a personal touch. They continue to hand pack more than half of their seeds and rely on their Ballard machine from the 1890s to do the rest. So order your seeds today from superseeds.com and use the promo code GOODDIRT2024 for 20% off your entire order. That's superseeds, S-U-P-E-R-S-E-E-D-S.com with our code GOODDIRT2024. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Every part of life is connected. And once you start seeing that, you can't call something bad and something else good. You have to say, well, this has a function. So it's a matter of understanding that our lives are not our own. We're connected to all these other people and our actions matter. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. just me introducing the episode for today, but Emma and I both hope all of you are finding some lovely slow living moments as we move through February, especially as we approach Valentine's Day coming up next week. As more and more people recognize the enormous environmental impact of this holiday that we've set aside as a culture to express love, please remember to include some love for the earth in your day by simply choosing some of the lower waste options in your own celebrations. There's so many ways to do this, but I'll just keep it super simple here by saying, make your own, bake your own, skip the plastic and cellophane, and buy locally and sustainably when and where you can. And check out last week's episode of Slow Living Through the Seasons for a favorite of ours, the chocolate ganache brownie cake that is sure to fulfill all of your Valentine dreams without all of the waste. Okay, so moving along, we have a lot going on at Lady Farmer with some new things coming up, including our annual Slow Living Challenge, and that's happening in March. We do it a little differently every year, so check out the link in the show notes for details on what we've got in store this time around and also to sign up. We hope you'll join us, and we'll be saying much more about that later. Okay. Now, for today's episode, our guest is Pamela Tanner Bowl, who's an artist, filmmaker, writer, and activist. She's the founder and CEO of Mystic Artists Film Productions. She's the co-executive producer of the Academy Award-winning documentary, Born into Brothels, and executive producer of many other films. She's directed and produced Who Does She Think She Is? This is a feature-length documentary that follows five women who are mothers and artists, and she also directed A Small Good Thing, which is a film that asks the question, 
how can we live in a better way? But today, Pamela is here to talk about her current project, a film called To Which We Belong, which highlights farmers and ranchers leaving behind conventional agriculture and adopting regenerative practices that are improving the health of our soil and sea and saving our planet. We're really excited to share this one with you, as this is what we're all about here on The Good Dirt. So here's Pamela Tanner-Bull of Mystic Artists Film Productions talking about the new documentary, To Which We Belong. Hello. My name is Pamela Tanner Bull, and I am a documentary filmmaker. I prefer making my own films. Sometimes I am an executive producer on others' films where I feel like there's a resonance between what I'm trying to do and what they are. But my latest film is called To Which We Belong, and that film is about, it's about a really big issue. It's about climate change. What can we do? Scary as all get out, right? And also something that we feel very powerless about, because after all, we're not the big oil companies. We're not the big whatever. So this film addresses that, but it does so in a kind of sideways way, which is the real issue is we've got too much CO2 in the atmosphere, carbon. What's interesting is that we have too little carbon in the soil. And our newest research is showing that the soil is quite depleted. And when it's depleted, our crops don't grow as well. And we need more and more inputs, fertilizer and whatnot. So we've been on an input train for the last really 50 years. What the film is about is these farmers and ranchers and fishermen who are finding ways to draw down the CO2 that's in the sky, put it back in the ground where it belongs, where it creates fertile soil and very healthy plants. Oh, yes, that's so exciting. And we just love talking about how to create good dirt on this podcast. That's what this whole show is about. Literally, the actual how to improve the soil and make it more fertile and also the good dirt of our lives. So we cover that topic in a variety of ways. And both of us have recently watched your film. It was beautiful, really well done. I loved all of the people that you highlighted and the way that you sort of brought that story together across the globe, really, and across disciplines. And it was really wonderful. And I especially appreciated the section on the underwater regenerative farming, which I've known a little bit about aquaculture and I knew that oysters were good. You know, I kind of like vaguely knew about that, but I hadn't seen, I hadn't thought about kelp in that way and all of the incredible ways that it can be farmed and that it can benefit not only the process of growing the kelp and harvesting the kelp is good for the system, but then also all the amazing things you can do with kelp. I had no idea. So that was really fun. So thank you for that. Awesome movie. Including a feed. Exactly. That was, so yeah. that they have less methane emissions, if you will. Although I have a dispute with people who call that emissions because it's really a, a very natural process. And the methane, everyone says, oh, you can't have cows. Well, guess what? If you don't have cattle or other ruminants on the grasslands, of which 70% of our agricultural land is grasslands, they will die. So excuse me, that's not a good idea to get rid of the ruminants or the grazing animals. And furthermore, that met, there's evidence that when the grass, when the, the ruminants are fed primarily or all on grasses, guess what happens? There's not the biggest methane problem that there is when you have them tightly bunched in the cathos. So in this film and in this whole movement of what we're going to call regenerative agriculture, perhaps, is science that we're still, we're learning every day new things. So people who used to be called wacky people back in the day, Gabe Brown is one I can name, have now gained a lot of credibility. Suddenly, science is catching up with practices. Tell us more about the idea that cows are a big emission problem on the planet. Okay. We think cattle are bad because they burp methane, which is a very strong greenhouse gas. It doesn't stay around long, but it's potent. 
So we're trying to get rid of the greenhouse gases. So why would you want cows all over the place? The problem with that thinking is that you're taking a piece of the problem. Ruminants, cattle, goats, I don't know, other ruminants, if they are not grazing grasses, what happens to the grasses is that they die and they become very brittle before they die. It's a fire hazard. So if you have cattle properly and goats or, or sheep properly being managed to graze on grasses, they move, you know, they munch, munch, munch. They're all tightly bunched and then they, they move on. And before they move on, they drop their, their poop and their pee, fertilizes the grasses they've just munched. They move on and those grasses come up stronger and also, so they have, the grasses are one of our best ways to bring down greenhouse gases. Anything green does so through photosynthesis. So that's one part of the issue. But the other issue is that if you want to tell everybody to go on a plant-based diet, what are you going to grow? Yeah. Huh? You're going to grow more soybeans. Okay. Because that's got high protein. People think they're great. They are as far as it goes, but do you know what the biggest problem with the deforestation, particularly in the rainforest in South America? It's farmers clearing trees for soybeans. This isn't a well-thought-out solution. Now, the other issue is grasses make up 70% of our agricultural lands, and they're not very good for agriculture of other kinds. The soil is good for growing grasses. It's not that good for growing soybean or other crops. So it's not so easy. There's so much nuance in this, but that's my take on it. You have to have the grazers. And if you want to get rid of something, you should get rid of cathos. You should get rid of the idea that cattle and pigs and whatnot can be fed on grain. It's not good. It's not good for the animals. The meat is not as good for humans when they've been fed grain. And not to mention the horrible you know, issues of those animals being in their own manure. And that makes them more vulnerable. They're very close in those contained places. And then they need to be shot full of a lot of antibiotics to keep them from getting sick. Yeah. So it's really not cows that are the problem. It's the way that we're currently feeding cattle. They should be back out there on the range like they were for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you saying these things because it's really important that people learn to think about these things just beyond the really kind of superficial, I call it sound bites, little pieces of knowledge that people take and then they develop entire personal ideologies around these things and that really don't go very deep. And and to your point, what if everybody t took that advice and said, okay, I'm not going to eat meat, I'm only going to eat vegetables. Then you're looking at all these monocrops and all these, you know, you have to to grow tons of vegetables and you're not going to grow enough vegetables to feed all of these people in a sustainable way because that is large-scale agriculture at work and large-scale ag agriculture is where you get into the monocropping and you get into the pesticides and you get into the herbicides and you get into the soil depletion and all of those things. I do want to jump in though and say that, I mean, this might be controversial. It's okay to eat less meat. It's okay to be more careful about where you're getting your meat. It's such a polarizing topic that I think this camp of don't eat meat, cows are bad and actually cows could save the planet. I think part of the problem that I observe being this world is that they're too far apart and there's so much animosity and people just the black and white stuff. So I think it's important to recognize, sure, eat less meat, be more careful about where you're getting your meat from. The, I think it is dangerous to think that all meat is bad. Oh, I agree. And the thing that people don't understand, again, I'm comparing cattles that are raised on grasses, which Everyone thinks that's what happens with cows in the non-ranching world. Well, it's not true. They all, all cattle are grazing, but then they're finished on these grains. So when we talk about grass-fed, we really mean grass-finished. So if you're really concerned about these issues, you should be looking for grass-finished animals. And also, gosh, yes, don't eat a big steak every day. 
I mean, honestly, that is probably not great for anybody. And so there's always a middle ground. And instead, people want to fight. And by the way, I like soybeans. Don't get me wrong. I love vegetables. Yeah. So going back a little bit, because I think we could all three of us just talk about that for a whole hour. I want to hear a little bit more about you and your story getting into this and to documentary filmmaking and why you chose this subject area and all of that. And I guess I'm wondering if there was an aha moment where where things shifted for you and kind of led you to be doing what you're doing now. Oh, there were several aha moments. First of all, I saw Alan Savory's Cows Save the World on TED Talks back in 2013, I believe, when it first came out. And I was like, this is amazing. I like things that try to think of things in a new way, but I wasn't persuaded completely but it stayed in my mind. I was in the middle of making another film. Then I started reading a lot. Courtney White, who started the Quivira Coalition in the West, and Judith Schwartz, who's in our film as an expert. Anyway, a lot of books about restoring our lands. Why did I care about this? I cared because I saw it was a potential solution for drawing down. We have the greenhouse gas problem which is basically too much carbon in the sky, as I said. Even if we went off of oil tomorrow and electrified everything, we would still have too much carbon in the atmosphere. Is a miracle. I mean, why am I excited about it? Because it's a miracle. We take it for granted. And to be honest, in the last 50 years in ag schools, they've been so pumped up by the chemical applications. I don't think that they're paying that much attention to it. I love the fact that this is a natural solution and a holistic solution. And it's one that is not a one-shot solution, like building a rocket to get us all to Mars, which I'm sorry. I want to live here on this planet. I wanted to make another film, but I really didn't because it's hard work. I make films that are what they call evergreen. I heard that term. It's They last a long time, but they're not necessarily splash all over the world right away. So it's discouraging. But what happened was I'd been researching these issues. I was excited about the possibility of drawing down CO2 through better land management practices. Then one night I flew somewhere to somewhere. I fly a lot. Couldn't sleep. I was complete. I had bad dreams. And one of the dreams was I was walking in this very, very arid desert-like place up a hill. Basically, it was across the street from me because I live in Colorado, which is dry as all get out. All right. And I could not breathe in the dream. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get enough oxygen. And I woke up. It was scary. It was a scary dream. And that dream persuaded me that I had to make this film because this is what's happening. If we don't start to pay attention, seriously pay attention to these issues and support the people who are out there working on the front line, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. So I have children. I have grandchildren. I hope to have great, great, great grandchildren. We live on a beautiful planet, and I want it to stay that way. This is our home. That's the other reason. I'm not good with technology, but I'm pretty damn good at creating home. And I love my home. And this is our home. So why wouldn't we do everything that we could? Why are we fighting? This fighting is nonsense. And I had a friend the other day say, oh, Pam's on her greenhouse gas photosynthesis kick again, as though we could do anything about it. It was a friend of mine. She's smart. And it kind of stopped me because I think we can. And my way of making a difference in changing the dialogue and changing the work, changing the practices, is to make a film that shows there is hope we have a solution that is right now available around the world. It works. We're still trying to measure the soil as best we can. There's some controversy about how to measure how much CO2 is getting into the soil. But over the last four or five years since I started making this film, guess what? Even the most conservative scientists are on the program that it is in the soil. How? By planting more plants, by grazing properly. It's a miracle. We don't even have to pay billions and billions of dollars to do it. But we have to get people to understand that we need to do this now. So I am so inspired by the farmers and the ranchers that are out there on the front line. 
they are doing it and they're getting great results. They're getting healthier crops. Their bottom line is impacted positively, maybe not the first year, but maybe the second. And in the long run, they're the heroes. So when a friend who's a lawyer, as it happens, says something like that, I want to say to her, watch my film and then go support the organizations that are helping those folks get this going. That's why I made the film. Oh, so inspiring and so important. And you're in such good company here because a lot of our guests, particularly over the last year, have been saying this same thing as this information comes out and as more and more people are embracing this concept. And even to take that a step further, you know, people like your friend and and really probably most people walking around right now think that this is an issue that has to do with policy. It has to do with our politics, it has to do with laws, it has to do with our leaders. And yes, eventually it does, but we don't have that kind of time. Well, actually, there's good policy happening. It doesn't get the attention it deserves with this administration that's in there now, and I'm not a political person, but there's $350 billion dedicated to changing the way we farm and ranch in the U.S. Yes. And guess what? It's not all spent. It's trickling out because people need to actually get on board and get that money. But 350, it's the biggest positive climate policy that we've had ever. Gets no attention because everyone gets locked into their their silos. Yeah, they're silos. But yeah. the other thing is, I got to tell you, these practices are being embraced by countries all over the world. My film played at the UN COP talk in Scotland, at COP26. They chose my film because they said, oh my God, this is the solution to climate issues. I don't know how many views we had. It was hard to track, but quite a few. But the point is the UN is 100% behind that these practices. So there is policy. But what do you do as an ordinary person? That's the question. So an ordinary person can embrace this knowledge as well. An ordinary person can produce healthy soil wherever they are. You can have a pot. You can put a plant in a pot on your patio, on your windowsill. If you have any kind of yard, any kind of space at all, you know, plant anything, plant natives. It's set in your film. Anyone can do this. Anybody can embrace the idea of supporting the soil, supporting healthy soil, because it is the foundation of life on this planet. And it is our future. This is what we want to tell people. It's so accessible and people feel so powerless, as you said, and they feel small. They feel like they can't make a difference, but they can't. They can. It might be small, but even just practicing and having the intention that your decisions and actions are going to help promote this idea of healthy soil from the food you choose to eat and what you choose to use in your daily life. How can you reduce plastic so it doesn't microplastics and wash into the the water system and go into the soil and all of those things that we talk about all the time. So these solutions are in our very hands, literally. That is so exciting. Here are some things we love about pine tree garden seeds. For one thing, they're lady farmers. It's a woman-owned and woman-run company. 85% of their staff is female. And they've recently switched to a more sustainable envelope to ship seeds. Their new mailers are completely recyclable, made of paper and a cushioning material that is specifically designed to easily separate from the paper fibers during the repulping and recycling process. They're also longtime members and supporters of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and signers of the Safe Seed Pledge, promising to never knowingly sell any GMO seeds. They do germination testing throughout the year on every single seed variety they carry, so they can stand behind their viability guarantee. Pine Tree Garden Seeds is meant for every level of expertise, for the yard artists, the backyard growers, the herb explorers, the bouquet builders, the habitat curators, and beyond. They're committed to helping you get the most out of your home garden by providing high-quality garden seeds, plants, and supplies at an affordable price. Get your spring garden going today by ordering your seeds from superseeds.com and using our promo code GOODDIRT2024 for 20% off your entire order. That's S-U-P-E-R-S-E-E-D. S.com with our code GoodDirt2024. 
Pamela, do you have any more specific maybe stories and things from the making of the film that we might not have seen on screen? Or can you tell us a little bit more backstories from the people that you highlighted? Oh, yes, of course. I am a big fan. I mean, really, all the farmers, but I loved Alejandro Cabello. Oh, they were so sweet. He is the rancher in the Chihuahuan Desert. Yeah, and it's him and his father. And then there's that photo. Yeah, I know. Yeah. (laughs) So interestingly, Alejandro spent most of his career in IT tech. But this farm, this ranch was in his family. And so his father said it's time. And he really wanted to go back and try it. Do you know what that guy did? It's amazing what he did. The whole place, there's bones of dead cattle. Everybody said, well, we're not getting the rains that we used to. Farmers were leaving. It's the Chawan Desert. You know, that gives you a clue. And it, within, I think, about three years, he had grasses up to his knees. And now they're even higher. And he followed the holistic planned grazing that Alan Savory had recommended, which was getting more cattle on the land. It's so counterintuitive. And then moving them, you know, so they didn't overgraze. And the water came back. How did the water come back? Because the more plants you have in the ground, the more your, you know, 20-minute huge shower, the water goes into the ground and stays there. I just love his story. And then the other one that I absolutely love was in, or I love them all, but the Anderson Ranch up in the mountains in Montana. And, you know, there's wolves. Where there's bears, grizzlies. And because the climate's getting warmer, those animals are coming down further to look for food. So the typical response is to kill them. So once again, we have a black and white thinking. In a holistic system, you figure out how you can keep the bears fed and how you can keep the wolves from attacking your your herd. So they started doing what they called range riding, which trained the cattle to be close in a very tight bunch and they were harder to attack and then also the grizzlies had that food the caraway seeds the caraway plants so people are not stupid let's not go there let's not go stupid land and then let's you know let's talk about the maasai cattle folks in the past and this is in the maasai mara in the past they had competed for the green grasses growing along that kind of semi-arid area. They were persuaded to try to bunch all of their cattle in one great group. That was, again, this is Alan Savory's idea. And within a year, their coverage of grasses went from 20% to 70%. And now they're doing even more conservancies. They, in, they, they sort of manage their land through something called conservancies. And it's like two or three times more of this kind of grazing. In all three of those cases, the wildlife came back. You see that in the film. You see the panther mama with the five cubs in the Maasai Mara in Africa. So, and then, yes, the wonderful story of the green wave. They're like, I'm tired of being a a fisherman. It's not working anymore. Our fish stocks are depleted. So he he came up with a whole new method of making a living while also cleaning up the ocean. And it's easy for other people to do. So I, in my opinion, all these stories are inspiring. Keith and Brian Burns, they started a whole company called Green Cover Seeds, are plant mixes that farmers can call them up or write to them, I don't know how they do it, and say, hey, what are the best plants that I can put in between my row crops, my corn, my soy, my wheat, if that's what they're doing, to amend the soil so I don't have to use so much fertilizer and I can even do away with pesticides. These guys went from having this business with no customers in eight or nine years, I think they had 9,000 and they probably had 15,000 big farms around the country. They're probably even overseas. So every single one of these methods are done by ordinary people who said, huh, let's try something different. Yeah. What you just said, let's try something different. Let's try a different way of thinking about things. That's so key. And in this segment about the rancher from Chihuahua, the 
the gentleman he was speaking to. Wasn't he great? (laughs) They were leaning against the fence. The rancher asked this gentleman, said, how do you change people? And he said, well, you know, it's, it's hard for humans to change, but he said, okay, so how do you make them change? And he goes, well, they had to because they were broke. But they were broke. They were broke. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know if he actually said broke or broken. He but, did. But in that story, because he's Mexican, he's speaking English, he meant both. I'm broken because I can't keep living this way. And my ranch is broken and everything. Yeah. So sometimes you have to get to the kind of like, what do they do in a recovery program? They tell you you have to reach rock bottom. We're very resistant as humans to change. Yes. And I'm wondering, like, for all of us walking around out there that, you know, climate change is, yeah, you know, we hear it in the news and it's bad and we're worried and what can we do? And, you know, all these things that are out there in the, the sort of collective thinking, when are we broke? When do we get broken to the point where we need to change? Every one of us, are, you know, our decisions, our actions. I want to do that before we get broke. Nobody wants to think about I that, right? Before we no, but that, that's, yeah, that's the issue. Nobody wants to think about it because it's too frightening. But I think what people don't know is that there's an underground, or actually it's pretty above ground now, huge movement to make these changes all over the world. I mean, the woman in, oh, she was working, oh my gosh, I should have reviewed my own film. I can't remember everybody's names, but she had one acre in, I think it was in Kenya. Okay, so she had changed the way she was growing her food so that the river system could be healthier instead of having all the soil run down into the river. But you know how many people that group, the Nature Conservancy, is working with over there? 50,000 farmers. That's not nothing. So we don't hear the good news. We really don't. It's not because the media is bad politicians are bad. I mean, maybe they are. But I think it's an age-old issue for humans to be more attuned to the bad news or the bad situation than the good. Why? Because for hundreds of thousands of years, our survival depended on being on the lookout for the danger. We're built that way. So we shouldn't be hard on ourselves that we don't quite get it. There's a lot of other things. I mean, if you're confronted with a fire in your house, or the back the back of your house coming down from grasses. I have grasslands right behind me, so it's on my mind a lot. One year we did have the firemen ran the hoses through my backyard, okay? Then you're sort of urgent. There's an urgency, and it's, oh, but it's very hard to even read about bad news in other places and get motivated. It does not motivate us to change our ways. If the island in Hawaii is burning up, well, I'm not in Hawaii. Who cares? I mean, I hate to say it, but that's kind of how we are made. We care, but it's a different level. We care, but it's like, um, I've got too many worries of my own. I got to go to pick up the kids. (laughs) Exactly. So what do you do about that? I think the best thing that I can think, and maybe I'm naive, is to give people the idea that they are actually not powerless in their own backyard. We're doing a series right now on our social media about how to do backyard gardens in a way that is soil friendly. So we've decided that we want to give people actual, you know, ideas of what they can do. You know, you can tell people to support organizations, but it's better if you're hands on. The other thing that is also stunning to me is it something like 70% of the food grown in our world is grown on plots that are less than a hectare, which is about two acres. Yeah. We don't hear that. To me, why is that important? Because it's not all big, you know, we, our food system, you know, we talk in this country a lot about, well, if we have small farms, they're going to go under because they're not productive. But in fact, 70% of our calories in the world come from small plot farms. That should give us all hope because anybody can go out and and do a a garden. And if they live in the city and they have no land, they can do a community garden. So that is powerful, in my opinion. And if you don't like to garden, then you can like go to the farmer's market or just buy the food at the grocery store that is appropriately grown. You know, grass-fed, grass-finished, organic, all these titles need to change. But you know, as a consumer, you have enormous power. Yeah. If you don't have the capacity or the interest or the time or whatever to grow something, then 
invest in food and products. We, we extend it to clothing that is, you know, going to, we, we, you know, we just say like, it's going to support good dirt. It's extremely nuanced. However, the basics are when you go to the, the store or the farmer's market, choose the foods. And is it organic? Is it regeneratively grown? Is it local? That's a really, really local is real. Yeah, that's important. And people can do that. They are not powerless, especially these days, to find food that supports the good dirt. You know, it, may, it might take a little more thought, a little more time, and it does take people a minute to get around the idea of convenience. And we talk about that as well. But beyond that, these things are very accessible. So with that in mind, taking a little bit more time, something else that we talk a lot about on this podcast, Pamela, is slow living. So in relation to slow food and slow fashion. So we're wondering, I guess, what does slow living mean to you? And as someone who makes films and has a bunch of family coming into town next week and no stove, I imagine that slow living doesn't feel very <laughs> close right now. But yeah, just wondering as someone who's in this world, but because we can relate. Well, let me say this. I grew up in West Virginia. Ah, and close to us. Oh, where are you? We're in D.C. Emma's in D.C. I'm in Maryland. Okay. Have you ever gone to Trey Hill's farm? He's in Maryland. 10,000 acres. Amazing. A vast collection of wildflowers in between the, the corn and the wheat. It's amazing. You should go there. But anyway, so I grew up in a place that didn't have any fast food when I was growing up. None. There was no McDonald's, Burger King, or whatever. I was born in the Chihuahua Desert. I lived there first. We moved when I was about going into first grade back to my mom's hometown. And my mother was a fabulous cook. And she made everything from scratch. So without knowing it, I was on the slow food train from the beginning without under, you know, understanding that. Of course, we sometimes wanted potato chips. And sometimes I'd go to my friend's house to have like you know, stuff that my mom wouldn't buy. The point is, it used to be that we ate better. I'm just going to say that. It used to be in this country, we ate better. Now, a lot of the little restaurants in West Virginia and other rural places were not that great, believe me. But the fact is, I was surrounded by home cooks. And the church we went to was potluck suckers every Wednesday. So I come from a background that actually people made their own food. And my grandmother was an amazing gardener. My major memory of her was out in, the, in her garden with a shovel. So my three sons, who are now grown, one of them is having these twins, or he has them. They are really good cooks because my family, when they were growing up, my husband and I, we were always in the kitchen. That's what we did. We didn't have fast food. My kids also complained that we had more family time than anybody else they knew. But that was important to us. So I think when I was young, I was, oh, I wanted to go to a big city and I wanted to have like intellectual experiences and I wanted to have more music and, oh, you know, stuff that wasn't available in a small town. I did go to New York, by the way. I lived there for four years, worked as, in a commodity trading company. Long story short, the real gift of getting older, you understand what matters. And what matters is community. And in order to form a good community, you have to bring people together through food and music and laughter. In order to do that, you have to make time. So I think that's the most important thing in my life is making the time. And of course, I also have lots of time alone. And as a filmmaker, I have a really great small team. They're just four of us, really. And then we, we hire camera people and sound people and editors. We, have, we hire editors too. But I have always loved film. I didn't study film. I was an English major. My sons, when I announced around the dinner table one night I was going to make a film about women who were artists and mothers and the difficulty of trying to do both, my three sons who were teenagers back then said, Mom, you don't even know how to turn on the camera. And as you may have witnessed this day, I still don't do very well <laughs> with technology. But what I do do well at is gathering a team, finding people who have the strengths and the ability to be a part of a community without being competitive. And I'm pretty clear on what I want to do, what I want to film. I'm, I have very clear vision, I guess I, you could say. 
So I think I'm on the slow living movement. I want to ask you, what is it that brings you to the point of deciding you want to make a film on a topic? Because I've looked at trailers of several of the films that you've made, and it's it's a wide variety of subject matter. And so what is it that brings you to the point that says, I'm going to make a film about this? I am completely driven by my feelings, what I care about. So there's things, the first film that I was involved with, and I didn't really do a whole lot on that film. I was an executive producer, which is mainly finding the money, was born into brothels. And I met the woman who was directing. Uh, she co-directed with another guy. And I saw the film in its very rough stage. And the kids, they were so brave and joyful and they had such spirit. And she was trying to change their lives. So it was very close to my heart. So the second film that I got involved with, or I actually made from start to finish, was called Who Does She Think She Is? And that's the story of five different women in the U.S. who are both artists and mothers. And the question there was, how do you do the work you're called to do and still take care of your family, especially when neither pay? Because if you're an artist, it doesn't pay much. So that was the question. And why was I driven to make that film because that was my experience with raising three boys and they're three and a half years apart. The youngest is three and a half years younger than the oldest. And I was a painter and I was lecturing at Harvard for a time and I was writing stories. I hadn't made a film, but when I saw, when I got involved with Born into Brothels before that, a friend of mine made a film called The Day My God Died about sex trafficking. It was, I didn't want to watch it. But it was powerful because it was about the people who made the difference. So for me, I'm very attracted to people who are going against the odds and pursuing their calling despite the difficulties. So I want to tell those stories. I think they're inspiring. I think they're full of hope. And I try not to be naive, but I love telling stories where you can see that love is the main factor. This last film, all those families that we interviewed, mostly the farmers and ranchers personally, but they love their lives. They want to make it better for their kids. That's powerful in my opinion. I would also add that there's a real love for the land, you know, love for the earth in a really a perhaps deeper way than that even sounds where you feel like almost a physical feeling in your chest, in my chest, you know, when I see land that's, you know, they've cleared a wooded area or, you know, they're putting up a new shopping center or something. It hurts. And so encouraging that, that love for restoration and protection and respect is to me, a big part of it. And the more we cultivate that love and that intense feeling and that intense feeling of connection, the more people we're going to have making decisions according to, to that. Yeah. And I would say some people have, as I said, call me naive. But here's the thing. I don't believe our lives are very good when we go after our goals and not pay any attention to anybody else who's around us. When we live in a way where we think we're going to be happy if we get to the top of our field and make a lot of money. Now, this is an old story. We all know this story. A lot of those people aren't that happy because in order to get there, they've had to cut off their relationships. It takes time to, to build community and, and have good relationships. So in my films, I think the thread running through all of them is that these are folks who have a different set of values. And they're not new values, they're very old values. And in our race to get more done and to make more money and to have bigger houses and the best education so that you get the, the best job, there's a place for all of that. Don't get me wrong. And by the way, right now, it's really hard for the younger generation to even achieve those things. It's really, really hard. We're, our generation had it easy in some ways. But it's a return to the interconnectedness of all of life. That's probably my biggest, what I value more than anything. That we are woven together with the birds. Every part of life is connected. And once you start seeing that, you can't call something bad and something else good. 
you have to say, well, this has a function. You may not like flies, but guess what? Without flies, you know, all of our putrid meats and, you know, leftovers would be not, you know, useful. Talk about microbes, healthy soil, lots of good microbes in that soil. Maybe people don't like microbes, but if you didn't have them, we wouldn't be able to eat. So it's a matter of understanding that our lives are not our own. They're not our own. We're connected to all these other people and our actions matter. And if we don't do those actions, if we don't try to be better, if you will, it matters. You know, you leave people behind, you leave, we act as though we're the only species on this planet. It really bothers me. We act like we're above the rules. We, we don't have to follow the rules yeah. of nature. Of yeah. nature. I think we need more biology. Yeah. <laughs> See, when I was growing up, we had field trips with our sixth grade teacher. Okay, West Virginia has one of the worst school systems in the country. It's known for that. And yet, I had field trips out to the woods with my biology teacher. So I feel, you know, there's a, a different way of living, I guess, that I think is inherently I won't call it good, but it's inherently more satisfying. Certainly. Yeah, I'm not going to call it good or bad. It's not a moral weight to it, but yeah. Sort of related, and this might feel redundant to you, but we love to ask this question of all of our guests. What does the good dirt mean to you? And that can be literal or figurative, however you want it. Well, along the lines that I was just talking about, the fact is life means things get dirty. And if you try to keep everything clean all the time, guess what? You're going to spend your life in a bad way. So we all eat, but we also all defecate, all this stuff. Guess what? If the animals didn't do that out on the pastures, we wouldn't have good good dirt. And sometimes we forget that. We want to make everything mechanical and chemical. So the good dirt is, for me, a kind of metaphor for, of course, what I love is that the microbes and the fungi in the soil, stuff that most people were like, mm, or those little tiny bugs, the nematodes and all that stuff. Without it, we're not going to live. So all the things that we think of as bad or dirty, they're dang good. But also, it's a metaphor for the fact that you can't just have the fun stuff in right. life, the good stuff. There's no good without the dirty. We forgot about the good dirt. We chemicalized it. We made it like it was a chemical, a chemistry lesson rather than a biology lesson. Here's the thing. We have systems in all of our countries, and we call them modern, and they're good for a lot of reasons, where we don't use our waste products, human waste. Well, we shouldn't because everybody takes drugs. I mean, prescription or otherwise. Maybe we shouldn't. But the fact is, in the good dirt thinking, there is no waste. Everything that's here is valuable. It's just like how do you use it? Might be more, more work. But back in the day, I know the Chinese, they called it liquid gold, you know, human waste. And that's what they put on their crops. And that sounds icky. But the fact is, we live in a world where there's throwaway and waste, and then there's the good stuff. But in the best of worlds, we work to figure out how to use those throwaway things. And we can't use them if they're plastic. I'm remembering in your film, The Chihuahua Rancher, he was picking up the cow dung, dung, yeah, and he was caressing it with his hands so lovingly. And the dung beetle, he was showing us the dung beetle and how it was doing its work. And I thought that was such a sweet scene because there wasn't any element of, you know, repulsion Repulsion. or backing away. And he was handling like it, it was something sacred. Which it is to him now. It is sacred. Yes. So it's just a beautiful way to come full cycle with all of these ideas, I think. This has been so much fun. We've really loved connecting with you. And I can't wait to watch other stuff that you've made. It's a really beautiful film. And is there anything else that you feel like we haven't touched upon yet or that you'd like to add? Or another way I like to ask it is what would you like the audience to most understand about the work that you're doing? Well, 
first of all, they can watch the film on a number of platforms. It's called To Which We Belong. You can go to towhichwebelong.com and you'll find all the ways to watch it. There, It's on Apple TV. It's on Prime Video. In some cases, you have to pay. In some cases, a subscription takes care of it. It's on Hulu, Vimeo. It's on a lot of stuff. So that's one thing. So that's towhichwebelong.com. But the other thing is, what I'd like people to take away is everybody matters. Everybody matters. We have a kind of big challenge in front of us right now, and everybody matters. Maybe you want to write a letter to your congressman. You can go on the sites of some of the folks that were in our film as experts, like the Savory Institute. That's Alan Savory's thing. He's the one who's started this revolution in grazing management so that the grasses come up stronger and the cattle are healthier. So the Savory Institute, go on their site and see there might be some interesting things that you could do or connect with. You can go to the Nature Conservancy, nature.org. They have tons of projects in this realm. Go see what they are. See where you might be able to volunteer, or if you're not interested in that, maybe you want to give $10 a month or $10 a year to further their work. They're just working. Any of the conservation organizations in our country or otherwise are doing this work, and they're trying to not only increase good soil, but they're trying to increase biodiversity because the two go together. So you could go to your local you know, in your little town, and maybe there's a community garden, and maybe you want to get involved with it. Maybe you want to go to the farmer's market. There's so many things that you can do. I just want people to know that everybody matters. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for saying that. It's a really beautiful way to put it. And it's a wonderful way to to think about this work, because as we'd mentioned earlier in this conversation, it can feel like a really faraway problem, but everybody matters. So we can all do something. So. Thank you so much for your time today. I I just really value this conversation and the work that you're doing. So thank you. Well, thank you too. This was really fun. I love talking about these things. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.